Hi, I'm Brittany Rogers, and we're entering fall season, which means I'm now wearing crop tops with jeans instead of crop tops with shorts. And I'm thrilled by by this transition. (laughs) I like it. Brittany has the same wardrobe in the winter as the summer. She just adds a cardigan, and I love that. (laughs) I wear a uniform. I'm trying to tell people it makes life so easy. (laughs) And my name is Ajne Dawkins, and I must stand in my truth and share that I have been for about 20 years now a Hillary Duff fan. Been about her, still about her. Um, if she decides to retour the Metamorphosis or self-titled album, I'm front row, not gonna hold you. Wow. <laughs> when she said, if you can't do the math, then get out of the equation, I'm calling you back. This is star 69. Her oh, mind. <laughs> Baby me said brilliant. <laughs> While I knew about the Hillary Duff fandom, hearing you quote these lyrics, another layer. Every day I learn something new. Best every day I learn something new. I'll make you an inspirational playlist. I used to believe in myself, okay? And oh we're your gosh. hosts of Versus, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Welcome. So we are super excited to be here today. We get the opportunity to interview Courtney Faye Taylor and we talk about her collection Concentrate. A banger. And a banger. Oh my gosh. And we talk about research and documentation and beauty culture and all of these really, really cool things. So but before we get into that interview, best question. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite beauty ritual? Oh, easily get my nails done. I knew that. <laughs> easily. <laughs> Listen, my okay, me and my nail tech have been rocking strong for the last good solid seven years. I can just show up and sit down in her chair. I don't even have to pick a color. Do you know what I'm saying? I just sit there. And sometimes she's like, do you know what you want? And usually I'm like, no. And then sometimes she's like, I'm just going to do something. I'd be like, great. And she doesn't miss because we have this seven-year-long relationship. It's, it's great. She plays my favorite music. You know what I'm saying? It's a whole little ambiance. I don't got to do nothing but sit great. there and look pretty. And I like that. <laughs> Anything where I get to sit and it's relatively painless. I was going to say get my hair done. is like a close second. You know what I'm saying? But that's longer. It hurts a little bit more, teeny bit. But my nails... Every time. Best, I love that for you. And something I hadn't thought about is how nice of an experience it is when the decision of having to pick a color is removed. You know, I go into a mini quarter life crisis every time. Um, <laughs> I, I hit that wall of color. I call you almost every time I hit that wall. The anxiety rises as I look at the wall of colors and I think to myself, who can make a decision like this? Oh, yeah, I almost never choose. And just be like, Mika, what color do you think today? <laughs> That's lovely. See, now you got me like, I need to build a relationship with somebody who I trust to choose a color. 
See? And then occasionally she'll take me out of my little comfort zone. You know what I'm saying? Or if I've gotten the same color too many times in a row because she really don't let me get away with that. She'll be like, no, nah, eh. let's try again, but we'll pick something that you'll like. Just let's nudge you a little bit. And I, I like it. It's, it goes. I love that for you, Bess. My little heart. <laughs> what about you, Bess? For me, it is anything spa related. Massage is always going to be number one. But massage, facial, you wrap me in some mud, you do any variation of those things, anything that is like sensory pleasure seeking, because it's not about how I look after, it's about how I feel physically in the moment and after. Like if I had to narrow it down outside of that to something that actually changes my physical appearance, it would be like the part of my pedicure where they massage me. Or the part of getting my hair done where they rub my scalp, the oil into my scalp. Gotcha. Because it's about the actual feeling of the thing. Like the, I'm a pleasure seeker. It just. <laughs> that is fascinating. Because for me, for the beauty rituals, I'm like, no, it's absolutely about exactly how it's going to look. I think I love the thing about how it's going to look. But the thing that feels like self-care for me is the feeling. The thing that refreshes me internally, that has me feeling like, wow, I really took care of myself today. I would rather go out of like leave a spa looking still busted, but having sat in some mud in complete silence or with the spa music playing in the background and have them work all the knots out my body, then leave with a fresh set. My nail and hair is done. Like my nails and hair done. Oh, Bess, I love that for you. <laughs> I also so, love how we are complete opposites because I'm like, complete opposites. Really <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'll be like, wow, you a bad bitch today, girl. That make me feel so much better. <laughs> and I love that for you. I truly do. And you always are. I mean, can't take it away from you. Always on point. Like <laughs> this is what tethers me to this earth, okay? <laughs> Hair done, nails done, everything. I'm such a stereotype. Ooh, I'm a tourist to the core. Do you hear me? <laughs> to the core. And for me, you work them knots out of my neck, you can't tell me nothing for a week. Like, you know what I mean? Like oh, what? I love that. So that and um I think also the reduced sensory output, the idea that it's completely silent or there's just the spa music, the sing, but people not talking, nobody's chattering, nobody's asking you too many questions. I fill out a form. Maybe y'all ask me <laughs> one or two questions at the beginning, but we ain't even got to talk. This is heaven. <laughs> listen, listen. Oh, okay, so yes. That's it. Do you want to read our guest bio? I would love to. Courtney Faye Taylor is a writer, visual artist, and the author of Concentrate, selected by Rachel Eliza Griffiths as the winner of the Cave Canem Poetry Prize. Concentrate was awarded the T.S. Eliot Four Quartets Prize from the Poetry Society of America and was named a finalist for the NAACP Image Awards, the Lambda Literary Awards, the Hurston Wright Legacy Awards, the Society of Midland Author Awards, the Heartland Booksellers Award. Courtney lives in Atlanta, Georgia, where she is working on a second book. Now that's a resume. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's how you clear (laughs) it. Courtney, would you do us the honor of opening up with a poem? Yes, uh, this is the first poem in Concentrate. It's called So Far. 
So far, my sentence as a black woman has been hard to hone, homed in sore white pith. But graciously, black womanhood has been a limb that's fallen asleep beneath me. Paddy wagon of spinal cords and Baltimore's traffic up ahead. This whole color was a mistake. A leak in the ceiling whorehouse. A confused ass whooping. You see the baby in the blinds, the eager run in nylons, a public school lisp making room for the velour of her name. I was one of them in grade school. It seemed my whole class had fallen asleep in front of a microwave. I drew faces on my galas, then ate them off. God, to me, was my distantly gentle Aunt Notre, brilliant completely, Virginia Slims and breadsticks, the shade on her side of Brewster slouched the coolish way of suburb deserves. Sunday, she was an usher with one breast. I crept to mom and pops where bells above doors snitched to mention my entrance, but I told them bells. I was toys to be bothered. I had made such toyish mistakes. In any black sentence, you'd love nothing more than to have made no mistake. Let me tell y'all something, okay? Because when I first opened up this book to the opening sentence, so far starting as so far my sentence as a black woman has been, I knew a nigga was in for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> I said buckle yes. up buttercup. He's gonna be here now. I love that. I'm glad oh. it's I'm glad it's a I'm glad it prepares you for what what is to come in the book. It does, and it's so stunning to hear you read it. Yeah. Because in the text it's in that black. And so to hear where mm-hmm. you pause, that that completely shifted so many lines for me. Like the line about your aunt notary stood out so much more with that pause. Yeah. And it just it did something to my heart. Yeah, it's interesting it being in a in a block. I a lot of my poems start off in prose blocks. I don't write poems ever in stanza form first. They always start as prose blocks. A lot of them end up remaining in the prose block. So it is interesting because there's not a lot of things indicating in the poem where to pause, where I might emphasize something. It 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 kind mm-hmm. of all lives in my head. Um yeah. It maybe it, it like the the way I read it grows as my relationship to it grows as I edit it and come back to it. Um, but it is interesting to kind of have it in that prose form and not necessarily like super obvious where those uh, emphasis are set up. Mm. I love that. Did you um, did you know when you were writing this poem that you were writing the entrance to the book? So I think. No, because I think this poem was kind of written as a one-off poem. I don't think I had the concept for concentrate yet when I had written this poem, but I can't really remember right now. But I think when it came time to actually sitting down and saying, what's going to open the book? I knew the book was going to open with this dialogue between the aunt and the niece. Like I knew that had to be the way we get into the book. But there was something about just starting right there that didn't feel quite right. I'm like, I need another poem. And I'm like, this poem, I always think of this poem so far as kind of the thesis of what I'm trying to say and concentrate. So it, mm. it, it was kind of like a quick decision to be like, okay, this this can open the book. Ooh. 
Okay, I love that. You're about to have me asking all types of follow-up questions. So let me <laughs> let me walk my little self back. <laughs> What's moving you these days? Um, so after, you know, I've been still living in the world of the book, like still doing readings for it. So it's, it's not... Um, completely out of my orbit yet as I work on new things. It's like, I'm still having this ongoing and I will always have this ongoing relationship with this book, but I think I'm really being moved by um, kind of writing prose right now. I feel like that is, and what really moved me to that is writing the four memorial section of this book, which I feel like is my favorite part of the book and the most meaningful part to me, that part that's kind of like these essays and so I think, and that's the the most recent thing that was in the book. I wrote that during the editorial process for the book at Great Wolf. So it's the newest thing. And so I think I'm still in that space of writing essays. So I'm really kind of moved by that and and kind of writing even more directly about my, my life and, and myself in ways that I only kind of begin to do and concentrate. Um, So I think concentrate has opened up for me an interest in kind of becoming a student of myself, like studying my, my life, studying Mm -hmm. my work, studying how I, how I write, how I write and why I write, how I write. Um, And kind of in that same vein, I'm kind of trying to work on a craft essay for the first time, which is like this interesting kind of study of the self, like how, how, what do I believe about writing? Because it doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's something, there's something pulling me towards the decisions that I make as a writer and the ways that I think. Um, and so being very intentional about understanding my impetus is of interest to me right now, particularly. Hmm. I love that. I do too. Can I can I ask a follow-up and ask um if there's something you've learned about yourself, your whys that has surprised you? Hmm. I had an interesting reading for Concentrate where I read at my alma mater, Agnes Scott. And so I was introduced by a professor that I had who was aware of my work at the time when I was an undergrad writing poetry. And he spoke about that even then I was writing poems that were kind of really invested in like the lives of Black children and uh, especially black children that had been killed and being really interested in, in those stories in a way that I, I did not even remember that that was something that I was writing about then. So to have concentrate come out and be kind of uh, this memorial to black girlhood um, and particularly Latasha Harlins and having someone else say to me um, that they recognized that calling or that passion a long time ago and seeing this book come to fruition and kind of be um, a manifestation of that interest and that desire was interesting to me. And so I think I talk in the book about anti-erasure, like kind of working against these disappearances of ourselves, particularly as black women and girls. And so I think writing concentrate has helped me realize everything I write is like an, a desire to write against my disappearance or the disappearance of others. Mm. Um, 
And I think that that will manifest in different ways throughout my career. But I think in some way, it will always kind of point back to that. And I think that's helpful to know because it's kind of like knowing your values and like knowing that and, and kind of being able to like check your work up against like your value system or like your, um, yeah, like what you kind of set out to do. Like, is this work doing what it, what I've set out to do as my calling as an artist? And I think that calling can also change and there's room for that too. But I think at this stage in my life with this book and, and some of the things that I I'm kind of working through now. It's still that desire. I absolutely love that, especially this idea of looking at your value system and then relooking at what you've created and, and seeing what's aligning and where there's gaps. For our listeners, can you just state a little bit what Concentrate is about and the story of Latasha Harlan's, um, just so they're caught up? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think of Concentrate as really an ode to Black girlhood, Black womanhood, a study of the precarity of this identity, but also the beauty of it. And at the center of the book, I deal a lot with the story of Latasha Harlins. Um, She was a 15-year-old Black girl living in South Central Los Angeles in the 1990s. And in 1991, Um, one morning she walks into a corner store called Empire Liquor Market to buy a bottle of orange juice. And the shopkeeper there, a Korean-American woman named Suja Du, assumes she's attempting to shoplift this orange juice. And so the two of them have an altercation at the front counter. At the end of it, Latasha places the orange juice on the counter, turns to leave, but Suja Du shoots her in the back of the head and kills her instantly there in the store. And it's um, when the police arrive at the scene, there are $2 bills like kind of crumpled up in her hand. And we often don't think about Latasha Harlins as it relates to the LA uprisings in the following year. We kind of directly correlate that to the beating of Rodney King, but Latasha Harlins' murder is also like stirring tensions and considerations in the community at the time, um, particularly the relationships between Black and Koreans in LA. And so the book also deals with that dynamic. So it's kind of juggling all these kind of different things all at once. And for me, Concentrate, before I even, Latasha kind of became a thing that I wrote myself into because at first I was really interested in Black hair and writing about the the dynamics within Black beauty supply stores and the racial element there. And then learning about Latasha Harlan's there's a really amazing scholarship on Latasha called The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins by Dr. Brenda Stevenson. And uh, Dr. Stevenson is able to kind of illustrate the 15 years of life that Latasha had. So you get to read this book and, and hear from her relatives and hear about her passion for writing poetry, her desire to be a lawyer, the fact that she lost her mother at a young age. Um, And so it was reading about her life that kind of really made me want to write about her in this book um, and kind of celebrate her life in that particular way. So yeah, the book kind of came together via all these different interests that I was chasing, which I think is kind of why the book reads very much like a collage like a a kind of myriad of ideas, concepts, questions that I have about all of these things and how all of them relate together. Hmm. 
I like that you said that it reads like a collage because some of the pages that felt more like collage work were so beautiful to me. I was really invested in like, so for example, the way that the missing persons were all spliced together, Mm -hmm. like those pages were haunting to me. And I think hearing you talk about it juxtaposed with just the different questions that you had makes, makes the collection as a whole make so much more sense. Yeah. And with that particular poem, I think um, one of one of the things that has really impacted me in my career, um, Lyra Van Cleef Stefanon came to visit my MFA program when I was there, and she had a craft uh, talk where she uh, cited Tony Capenbara, this particular quote from The Education of a Storyteller. And it's the quote is, what are you pretending not to know today, sweetheart? Colored gal on planet Earth? Hmm. Know everything there is to know. Anything she, we don't know is by definition the unknown. Mm. And that's just really stood with me. So this idea that everything I, I need to know is already within me. Like I have an intuitive power as a black woman. There is no question that can't be answered. Any question that I have that I pretend I don't know the answer to, I have it already. Mm. So I think like that. That question is always guiding me, but also just the idea of questions. So when Lucille Clifton says, I write out of questions, like poetry is about questions and not answers. When I think about that particular collage poem, what happened was I was thinking about a Black girl that went missing when I was a little girl. I was I lived in Mequon, Wisconsin, which is like a suburb outside of Milwaukee. And there was a girl named Alexis Patterson that went missing. And I believe to this day, Alexis has not been found. And so I was just curious to see if her missing persons flyer was still out there. Um, and so I went searching for it. And then I got interested in the form of a missing persons flyer, like as its own sort of thing, because it's it's kind of meant to reduce like a human being down to these characteristics in order to find them. So already it's like a reductive format. And then also, if you take into consideration like wanted po- posters, like looking for like black women that have been criminalized, like it, it's even more reductive. So they just took me down this rabbit hole where I wanted to go to different police departments and the FBI's most wanted list and look at these flyers um, and kind of comment about how black women are reduced um, erased and fused together by how they're depicted and defined on these flyers. And that was something I could not quite say in a poem. And so I was like, well, there are these images that exist out there in the world. I want to use the resources that I have to my disposal, like these images to, to communicate what it is I have to say. And I think that that was ultimately like a, a great thing that I would I'm, I'm happy that I was able to kind of think about the book in this way of like, I don't need to necessarily force a poem out of this if I feel like there's something already in existence I can be con- in conversation with. The very literal act of visual collage is me kind of pointing to and paying homage to the fact that like there's research around this. There's something else outside of me that I want to be in conversation with um, to make the point that I'm trying to make. Mm. I love that. I'm curious. Sorry, you just given me so much to chew on. This is really I'm brilliant. curious about if you encountered any ethical dilemmas 
um, and researching and developing this work um, that you had to work through? Yeah, I think when I, I think it's natural, I, I think, for folks to kind of focus on Latasha Harlan's being like the, the, the center of the book. But I really try to emphasize that it is a larger like examination of Black girlhood and Black womanhood because I never want to be in the position where I'm saying I'm speaking for Latasha Harlins or that I know her story or to the degree in which I am an authority on it at all. But more so being called to that story for how that for how her life and her story allow me to kind of see myself and my position in the world. And so I was always nervous about like people reading it and thinking it is kind of like this biography or it's meant to stand in as this definitive truth of history instead of kind of um, what I think of it is, it's kind of like an invitation into my head and an invitation into my heart as I kind of are pres- am presented with this history and trying to make sense of my life through it. And so I think that that that's kind of like also the nature of like writing about real people with real stakes, real lives um, that I always want to be careful about and have care toward in the same way. I felt that way, even about writing about the black and Korean dynamic. I'm like, okay, I'm a black woman. Like I understand my position. I understand what anti-Blackness looks like to me. I understand what it feels like to me, but I'm not writing about anti-Blackness necessarily in a in the direct context of like it happening via a white person. I'm talking about another marginalized person that also has their own systemic oppressions that they deal with in the context of America. And so I wanted to make sure I was sensitive to that. Like I want to be honest about anti-Blackness, but I also don't want to erase erase a very true reality for a community that we are in solidarity with. So that was a, another big worry. I'm like, am I doing justice to this? Am I like doing this in a way that it does not cause additional harm? And also, am I doing this in a way where I'm pointing to white supremacy as the ultimate instigator of all of this? Um, and to me, working through that was really having a lot of people read it and feeling like, uh, the people that I entrusted with reading it kind of saw the care that was put into how I navigated those things. And that was, that was of most importance to, importance to me. Like, is the care evident and is the care thorough? Mm. Um, I accomplished care in this, but it was something I was kind of afraid of for a while. That's a word. Yes. That is a word. It really is because I love that question of is the care evident? Not what was like my heart disposition, but is what I set out to do evident to people beyond myself Um, as a measure of the ethic too? That'll preach. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, like, like that is the part that it does matter what other people think to me. Um, because a lot of times I feel like, you know, as a writer, I'm like, I want to write for myself first, right? I want it, I want it to be true to me. But if I'm putting my work out in the world, I have a responsibility for it to be true to others. Um, and and so that 
that element matters, you know, and not everybody is gonna agree with, with it or see, you know, what I see in it, but by and large, I need to make sure that people are, are being seen, particularly black folks, Asian American folks are being seen in in what I'm doing. Um, I'm setting out to do this work to, to be a voice in this conversation. I have to be doing it right. So that was a big thing. But also, as I say that I know in, uh, in other conversations in which this has come up, I, I really did kind of obsess about doing it right and being right, but then kind of had to re-transition that into like doing it with care. Mm. Like, because somebody else is going to write this same thing and have a different perspective. Someone else is going to write it and, and do it a, a different way, see it a different way. So moving away from needing to necessarily be right, but needing to make sure whatever I have to say, it's with intention um, and respect and care. That pivot, I think, is so important. I'm really going to to sit with that, the idea of moving with care as opposed to being right. I think I'm a person who's usually focused on like, okay, <laughs> is this the way that this is supposed to be done? Will people be pleased with it? So that shift is like really, really resonating with me. Yeah. I also felt as a reader, such care in the way that you handled Black girlhood and in the way that you handled Black beauty culture. And I was wondering if you would be open to talking about how you navigated the Black girl coming of age within, situated within that beauty culture. Yeah. Was there a particular place like with, or like a particular, um, do you mean like the like Black hair? I mean, Black hair. I feel like there are also points where the speaker referenced kind of an understanding of needing to be pretty, like even with going to the beauty supply store, like we know that we're going to get dialed up or the entrance of the book with your aunt pressing your hair mm-hmm. or pressing the speaker's hair, right? Those are things to yeah. me that stood out as like a part of beauty culture. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, yeah, I was particularly interested in that scene of uh, as a Black girl of getting your hair done by your mom, your auntie, your cousin, and like that that physical position of being in between the knees of your elder, and in that that interaction, um, and that for a lot of us, kind of being one of the first, um, I guess, methods of beautification that we go through. It is a communal thing. Um, it's not something we're left to do on our own. I know for me, growing up, my mama would not let me do my hair, like <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Black elders, especially like moms, they they kind at least my mom like has this sense of like my hair is kind of her hair. So like if I messed up my hair, I remember one time I like cut off one of my pigtails, livid. She was livid. Because it's like to 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 my mom and like to some black elders, it's like I put so much care, like the beauty that I the time I take to beautify you is a care and a love. You are a representation of me when you walk out the house. So like you got to look cared for and part of looking cared for is like this beauty regimen. So I was really interested in that. And even this setup where this aunt character is, you know, straightening the speaker's hair, preparing for her to go out in the world to do whatever she's going to do that day. And also giving her this talk, like the race talk. Um, which I think 
I speak a lot about this. I think we get various race talks. It's not just one talk. It's like a, a, a accumulation of narratives that we get that by the time we were an adult, we have kind of been in all these ways, kind of bombarded with these narratives of our identity and how other people are going to see us, how other people are going to treat us. Um, and we carry all of that. And then when you're in adulthood, it, it can be kind of smothering to to have all those narratives. But they happen over time. So kind of sitting here and and, and the speaker is getting the story of Latasha Harlan's um, and her aunt kind of warning her, like, you know, no one is you are not exempt. Like you are going to be a target of something. Um, and that this warning is meant to be a love and a preparation, just kind of like the preparing that is like getting ready to go out, getting your hair done, getting ready to go in the world. So like the preparation that is beauty and the preparation that is like these racial uh, warnings. I wanted to kind of put those together in the opening of the book in a kind of way where I'm preparing the reader. Then it's like, you're, you're watching this preparation like routine. And then like, how does that prepare you to move through the book? And then after that, how does that prepare you to move through your world? Thank you so much for that. Thank you for asking. Yeah, this it's um, I think one of the great things about writing this book is like, you know, and I actually have not sat down to read it all the way through since I've published it. I think I have a fear of it because it's like, it's in the world now, right? If I read something, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. I can't do anything. <laughs> so it's like, I can read this front to back. I used to read this front to back every, like several times a week before it was in the world, but now it's just like, it's out there. But I love it, it. It just excites me for when I am ready to read it again, that I think it will teach me new things of what I had to say. Like, I think I'm still even beginning to understand what I've said in this book. Um, and I want to always write something where it continues to teach me and it'll come back and serve me. Um, and so I, I'm even excited by that question and and kind of realizing the way that like a beauty routine and, and beauty culture is kind of embedded in here as a larger conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. We were very excited talking about it on the side. <laughs> um, okay, so I am curious. In a previous conversation, you mentioned that you were moving away from poetry for the moment. Um, and I think you mentioned it here as well. So what is drawing you toward other genres and how has it been different? Yeah, I think um, really some of the things I've been writing recently have been very closely related to things that I have experienced recently in my life. And so the writing has been first and foremost, like a way to, 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 to get it out of me, to get it, to get it on paper. And so it's, it's come out in more of like an, an essay form. And so what I've just been doing is kind of like going with that and being like, okay, like I've written this again. I don't even know like how much of it will actually ever enter the world, how much of it is just for me, but it is coming out in like this 
very kind of like prose form and not not so much the poetry. I don't know. It's been a while since I've I've written a poem. And I know that that will come back to me. Um, but I think kind of even the ways that I'm really kind of excited about the, the essays and concentrate. Like when I read from this book, I, I spent a lot of time reading those essays. And I think what it is, is I was maybe even kind of like pleasantly surprised about the insights I was able to like reach about myself and this project by writing about it so directly. Hmm. So I think of like, once you get to the middle of the book, it's like a breaking of the fourth wall. I'm, I'm literally start by saying while writing concentrate. So I'm literally talking about like the craft of writing this book. Um, and I think I say some of the most important things in the book, in that section. It's one of my favorite sections. It messed me up. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Cause it started as, you know, I actually had never, physically been to LA. And that was part of the imposter syndrome. And I talk about it in that essay. I'm like, I have not been to LA, but I'm writing so much about it. I feel like I need to go to like, make sure I know what I'm talking about to like, just stand in these places. Um, So kind of being driven to do that out of like, kind of going back to like that fear of like, what if I don't know what I'm talking about? I need to exhaust everything. And I know I can't go back to 1990s LA, but I need to like be in these places. Um, and the and the way going to those places and writing about it really opened up another level in the book was amazing to me. Um, and even when I had gone, I wrote up my reflections and I put it in my author questionnaire Cause at some point in the author questionnaire for gray wolf, it's like any interesting stories about how this book was made. I'm like, Oh, well I went to LA recently and I just typed it up. And then my editor was like, are you going to put that in the book? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I guess. And so that, that's how that opened up. And then I wrote like that, that part of the book. Um, and so I think I'm just astounded by the power of, of that kind of form, like the, the essay, but I'm also really like interested in like the, the blend of those forms. There's like so many amazing poets that like write like lyric essays and like the blend of like poetry and essay, like even Camon's recent um, book, like that, like floored me. And I'm, I get so excited. I'm like, okay, like the vignettes and like using the use of white space, like on the page and like, just knowing like what is possible, even if I do do the, the nonfiction, I'm like, poetry will always kind of stay with, with me in that. So yeah, but it's kind of like that writing of the prose out of like a, a a need to kind of like write about my experience. I don't know if y'all are into astrology, but I've just gone through my Saturn's return. It's okay. imagine they ask right now. <laughs> no, seriously. My God, I'm not even an astrology girl. But yeah, niggas yeah. did try to warn me about mm-hmm. this raggedy ass period of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the most. I'm it's sorry. Really? 
it's just a complicated time because some of the greatest things happen and then some of the worst things happen. Like my book came out during this time, but also like other very difficult things happened. And, you know, I'm out of it now. Like I'm about like a four or five months out of it now, but it's like, damn, like that, <laughs> like was just like, so I was really writing to move through that. And so that, that was different than the poetry, you know, cause like oftentimes poems come to me and I just write it and it comes out of me. Right. But like, I felt like I was writing to like, for my life in some situations, like to kind of like really try to understand what I was going through. So that writing out of a different sort of necessity mm. is, it was interesting to me and is interesting to me as I continue to kind of follow that and see where that goes. Um, but I am, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see when my next poem will come. Um, Cause I know poetry, I, I I'm never going to be done with poetry, but this, I know this break from it is in important and I'm excited to see how it comes back to me and what it looks like when it does. I have kind of a tangential question that is, is compiling based on some of the stuff I keep hearing you say. So how much did concentrate change from your submission to the Cave Canem Prize to its publication. Because in an interview you did, I don't even remember who it was with, but you did an interview and you talked about how when you submitted it, you only had like one image uh, um, in the book, I think. And then I've heard you say maybe two or three times in this conversation that you added these sections. Um, so I'm just curious, like that submission manuscript versus what ended up being published, how, how much that changed. Yeah, y'all don't want to see the version that. Um, <laughs> I mean, like again, like <laughs> it, it won a prize. It was, it, it was, it was. I will say it was kind of as far as I could take it without an editor coming in and helping me, like reorganize it. So, like, I'm like forever grateful for like Rachel Eliza Griffith seeing the vision and seeing what was there, but it did take a lot of reorganizing like, and kind of figuring out, okay, what do I want the reading experience to be? Cause I spent a lot of time with the book kind of just in my head. It was just like, it made sense to me. Um, but I was like, I'm not sure how much this translates to someone else. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the editorial process, I, I changed it a lot. Um, my, my editors were like amazing. They, they both really helped me kind of move things around and also take things out. Um, things that I thought I was really attached to that now I don't even miss in the book. So it, it's, it's kind of like, I remember at the time I had a, a series of poems about the history of orange juice in the book. And I'm like, but that's so important. Like that really, and it, it, it might've been like an Aquarius, like tangent, like that was like really like interesting, but I'm like, I guess I might not actually need it for what I'm trying to say in this book. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have life elsewhere, elsewhere. So kind of like 
being willing to let go of poems was um, part of that process too. Um, but yeah, like the, the, the photos that are in the book came in during the editing process. I want to, I would have to actually go back and compare the drafts, but yeah, a lot, a lot of it had changed. Um, and I think I'm, again, really grateful to my editors and Rachel Eliza because they they all kind of helped me as I was moving the book toward what it would eventually be. And so those months were like, it, it seems like that that time went by so fast because the book comes out the next year. And so you have like only months to kind of get to that final draft that you turn in. Um, but so much happened in that time um, and, and having other people read it that were outside of me and, and were able to kind of be like, okay, if this is what you want the book to do, you might want to consider these things that like, that was really critical. I'm someone that like, I was submitting this book when it really wasn't ready. I was out here submitting it to like, I would, I, cause I get excited. I'm like, oh, wow, I have this great concept. And I, you know, was submitting it like, now looking back at old versions I submitted years ago, I'm like, oh, wow. Like, I'm really glad that didn't get picked up because that, you know, but it, um, you know, so it, it wasn't like I sat on the book until I was like, okay, like it's, it's, it's like done. I think my process was like, I'm going to just keep submitting it like every year. Um, and then when it, when it's supposed to get picked up, it'll get picked up type of thing. I really appreciate that insight because I feel like so much of like the publishing and editing process is so mysterious. Whew, yeah. for so many of us that yeah. that's really helpful to know. Yeah. It really is kind of like you have to learn as you go. Cause it's, there is not a lot of like ways in which like people will tell you like, like this is, this is what it looks like on a standard level. But um, I was really appreciative of my publisher kind of being like, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And kind of giving me a literal calendar of like, okay, in this month, you will do this. And by this month, you'll pick the book cover and this. And so that that kind of helped me navigate it because it there is a lot that happens in a short amount of time. So shout out to great editors. Shout out to that whole like behind the scenes process. And I really love that you were supported in that process of your first book. I think that makes me smile to hear it. So we have this question that we want to ask you that we ask each of our guests. And it is, if people who want to engage with your work, right, and want to feel like they really know like a bomb, accurate version of you, we want to know if there are three people across any genre that your readers would have to engage with in order to understand your work? I think because that Tony K. Wimbara quote is like such a guide for me, I would have to say Tony K. Wimbara's work, but particularly the education of a storyteller, like that essay. Um, I wanted to think of like, I, I, all that was coming to mind is like 
black women in conversations, like how black women just speak to each other. Like really that, like I think about the ways black women and my family speak to one another, just the dialogue and the tone of our voices. So like being in, in those rooms, I'm trying to think of one person that embodies that or one thing, but I'm just thinking of that, like collectively, like what it means to be kind of inundated with our voices in a room. Um, and then I don't know why this was coming to mind. I I really, I actually, and I'm not sure how much of my work actually really relates to this, but I really enjoy, um, a, a 24 movies and like, just like the, the kind of like bizarre, unique, films that they put out. Um, I think I aspire maybe to kind of having that sort of like just kind of, um, I, I think of their movies as kind of like collage, kind of like this, like, really interesting like way of putting images together and narratives together like the so yeah I, I'm really inspired by like those movies so I would say uh those three things maybe can you explain what a24 movies are <laughs> that's just a production company so it's like oh um so if you think of like sorry yeah like for example um moonlight is like per the movie Moonlight, it was an A24 movie, Midsummer, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. So like the, the, those movies that I think are very like artful. Um, and again, those are, they're like different directors, different filmmakers, but like they, but I feel like A24 takes on like these very um, interesting narratives and has a very, and those movies tend to kind of have like a very, um, unique way of like approaching a subject that I really admire. So anytime I see a movie that is coming out through A24, I'm going to watch it. Very. <laughs> I was like, you don't put me hip to something. I was about to say same because yeah. I didn't realize the folks who made the everything, something, everything, everywhere, all at once. You know the movie, okay? I, I can't never get the title <laughs> right. That one and Moonlight, I didn't know that was the same production company. I feel like mm -hmm. it's like finding out two books you love is on the same press. Right, right. No, it, it's exciting. Beautiful. Okay, love that answer. Um, so we're going to do a quick like three to five minute break. A little longer. I got to run to the potty. Oh, okay. We're going to do like a five to seven minute break. <laughs> and when we come back, we're going to play a game. Courtney, we are going to be playing a game called Fast Punch. We are going to give you a list of things, and you are going to tell us the best or worst thing in that category. Um, so you can start by letting us know if you want to be an optimist or a pessimist today. I'll be a pessimist. Lovely. So you will be giving us the worst thing in the category that we give you. Okay. All right. Bet you ready? Do I have to be fast with it? Or can I like pause if I need to? Or should it be fast? The rules say it's supposed to be fast, but people be breaking the rules and they be thinking and I'm okay <laughs> with it. 
Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely okay with it. I want to know the truest answer. True, okay. Got it. Okay. Worst research tool? I, th- I think the worst way to research is like feeling like you have to stick to, to one methodology to begin with. Like just like th- this idea that there is a way to research, I guess. I don't know if that's a good answer, but <laughs> um, research to me is I'm just following what, I, what I'm interested in. So anything that's like, prescriptive of like you can't research in this way would be a not good research methodology to me worst movie franchise i feel like they got a lot of fast and furious movies i've not seen any of them so it feels bad to say it's the worst but they got a lot of them and i just feel like you don't really need to have that many movies but but honestly if i watch it and i like it i'll i'll apologize (laughs) sorry i'm really sorry (laughs) I'm standing in solidarity with you as somebody who has also not seen Fast and Furious, but am a hater. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Worst place to write? At home. I I don't know. For me at home, because I associate home with like relaxation. I just can't write at home. It's too quiet. I'm too away from the world. So at home. Yeah. In bed, particularly. Hmm. Worst vacation spot? Any of those cities that are like major like tourist traps or like any place that like is just kind of like a microcosm of what it's like at home to go there. And it doesn't really feel like you're you're experiencing another place. Mm. Mm-hmm. Worst poetic form. I'm just going to say contrapuntal because I don't like saying that word, but there's a contrapuntal <laughs> in my book. So, you know, <laughs> look, these things happen. <laughs> Worst writing snack. Something that would give you the itis where you can't write. So like anything particularly like too good to anything that's like really good. that's just going to take you out of it. Like soul food. I would really like that, but I'm not going to get any writing done after I do that. Facts. I've never been productive with a catfish plate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's never going to happen. Uh-uh. Worst sound to write to. I've been to some coffee shops where they insist on playing Screamo. And it's mm-hmm. unbelievable to me. I think it's unbelievable when like coffee shops don't just play like coffee shop music. So, Yeah. Screamo. <laughs> Yikes. Worst beauty routine. Uh, contouring. It just seems like a lot. A lot to do. <laughs> I just anything where we're doing that. I don't I'm not good at makeup, so I know that's like a very foundational routine to do, but that's the worst one. <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it don't work for me. Okay, well, lovely. So the great news is, is that you won the game. Um, (laughs) And your prize is that we get to hear a poem to close us out. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Great prize. I love how that tickles you. (laughs) Every time. Because I'm like, (laughs) it's really us winning every time. If they listened, they would know. We won. Nobody wins but us. (laughs) Please. 
Brittany, will you do us the honor of reading this poem? <laughs> yes. Visitation. Last time I saw my half-brother alive, he was asleep in our father's police jeep with one arm stuffed up his shirt sleeve. That's at least what I needed. I was in there too, making Polly Pockets hook up in the cup holder. Of that, I'm certain. I deserve that. We got left in the car while daddy shopped Lowe's for a four-mode showerhead suitable for Priscilla, the woman he bench-pressed and ballooned his privacy for. I recall her bonnet making couch cushions slick and me sweeping her top-colored makeup wipes from behind the vanity when the trash can was thrown to break my heart for lying. Something about her nightgown with the chartreuse tassels, I feel, encouraged him to leave us in the back seat at the Bally Total Daycare, in our skin, a joke of his that ends, when I jumped out, you jumped in. But this wasn't most my life. I belonged to my mother six hours west and only left once a season for the purpose of daddy laying his belt and depression on me. If ever I were trapped in his car or harmed with garbage, it was only once a season. Between these visits, he'd never call to see how I was. He'd never call to say how anyone else was. It wasn't that I lacked a phone. Mama strung a double dutch of landlines in every bedroom. I had the means to speak. There were means everywhere I slept. Pity jives inside the belief that my father was too chicken to ring, that most men of slave descent have had, at some time, a reasonable, yet detrimental fear of the home and its bones. But harm isn't most my life. I weep and achieve it only once a season. If ever I am trapped in police cars or harmed with garbage, it is only because it is the season. Why would you wreck me like that? <laughs> that repeating refrain of once a season and the way it turned every time you said it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Courtney said y'all wanted to win. <laughs> right, right, right. You There's won. your prize. You won. <laughs> my prize is that I'm in my feels now. <laughs> I really, really loved hearing Courtney talk about this book. I've been, best you know, the vibes. I have been a fan of Concentrate. I read it and it was, it was love at first read. It was love from, from line one. I do in fact know the vibes best and well deserved. It's an amazing collection. So if you don't have it yet, what are you waiting on? Get it together. I'm very grateful. I think I'm especially grateful to hear her talk about wrestling with this, the difference or the gap between doing something right versus doing something with care. That was just really, really profound to me, especially in a space where I feel frequently afraid to make mistakes. That was a great framing of of this thing. And it the the way Courtney talked about it didn't remove um the the reality that there is intent versus impact because Courtney said like is it is it being received the way I intended it um, or I might be paraphrasing but 
beginning with that question of not, was this the right way to do it? But did I do this with the most care that I could have done? And did my readers feel that care? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was such a good reframing for me. No, same for me, Beth, because Lord knows I love a checklist. If I can just be like, okay, boom, Listen, boom, boom. The rubric. I hit the things. <laughs> so to even think about um, the ability to let go of control, the control that I think I feel like I have with the checklist, and instead push forward towards making sure that that care is evident, because care is such an intangible thing. Like I think about yeah. even just in between like relationships or friendships, how often there's one person that feels like they're being caring and the other person doesn't feel cared for. So thinking mm-hmm. about how much more intentional you have to be to make sure that, that care is evident is across the board as much as possible. Right. And I know it's not possible to please everybody, but for that care to just to be what resonates with the audience yeah. at mass. Nope. That part. 10 out of 10 agree. Yeah, I think that in conjunction with the idea of is the work I'm writing in alignment with my value systems or the like yes. the values that I say I have. So one, did I do this with care? And then two, when I revisit this and I look at what I what I'm saying is my system of ethics, my system of values, and is the work I'm producing in alignment with that, I just feel like I have a new way to think about my work. So I'm really grateful to Courtney for, for saying, for saying that in that way. It was just, it was chef's kiss. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) listener, you cannot see us. That sound. We simultaneously did a little uh, chef's kiss hand motion. So yeah. Yeah. That, that's got me. That's got me tender in my chest. No, I agree. That framing gave me a lot to think about and almost like a new compass. Mm-hmm. So like a new internal guide, a new internal voice, which I appreciate. I also really love the way that Courtney framed research as just like the going down the rabbit hole until you've exhausted mm. everything there is to learn about a new subject. I really appreciated that. Um because often when I think about research, I think I'm thinking about like very formal methods of like, you know, discovering something and approaching it with this very specific question and hear her just be like, no, I just follow the trail of what I'm fascinated by. And I follow it until I've exhausted the trail, um, so to speak, is really, is really affirming. And I think, again, I think the reframing that Courtney did throughout this episode is really shifting the way that I approach not just care and ethics, but also the way I approach research or the way I think about research. Agreed. Insane. I love that piece of it even in her book, Concentrate, because if you have any relationship to academia, then what you're taught is when you're presenting on something, you remove yourself from it. Mm-hmm. And I love that by the nature of how Courtney was presenting almost this like documentary style poetry, she was able to from jump insert herself because like we are always the lens for the research we're looking at. And to, to not say I does not make that any less true. Yeah. So I love that as well. Um, The idea of going down the rabbit hole and all of the things 
that you can discover in the rabbit hole and what it means for you to be, what it means to to look at research through the lens of your discovery as opposed to somebody else's. With that, Bess, I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What research or research question is close enough to your heart that you could research it forever for like the rest of your life without getting bored? Uh, as an umbrella, the audacity of Black women is something mm-hmm. I am endlessly fascinated by. And when I say audacity, I think I mean our nerve, our brazenness, our willingness and fight and drive. I think everything that sustains us is audacious. Mm. I think everything that keeps us alive is audacious. And so I'm endlessly like fascinated by the different forms that that takes, whether that's like through the daily domestic life, whether that's through our beauty culture, whether that's through seeking pleasure, whether that's in finding our abundance. Like I'm truly fascinated by it in all form. Mm. No, I see that best. Your work on, on Black women, on like, Black women in audacity and rap and poetry. Foundational text for me. I'm not doing this with you. <laughs> Nobody's doing this with you today. Foundational text. Let me tell you, I'm canon. Cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> nope, that makes what sense. What about you? What's your subject? I feel like there's, oh, I guess my umbrella is going to be in the places they show up specifically looking at all of the things that come from the Black church, what built it, what sustains it, what has come out of it. And there are a million different offshoots from that. I'm very fascinated with spiritual lives of like some of my favorite pop culture icons who are reared in the church. I'm fascinated with the way the church is used and shows up in our own day-to-day culture, even when people are not attempting to invoke God, Mm -hmm. but when they're trying to invoke something intangible or say something about encouragement or excitement. For me, the Black church, that's like my endless well. And that is very on brand. There are essays coming out. Y'all don't know. (sighs) All right, Bess. Let's, let's, who are you (laughs) thankful for? (laughs) You stopped me just in time because I was about to go into a hole. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am thankful today for the work of Sadia Hartman, especially mm-hmm. Labor Lives, Beautiful Experiments, which I'm rereading right now and just seeing so much of myself in and seeing so much of a lineage in the wayward woman that are being archived and are being talked about. And I'm grateful for that scholarship existence. I'm grateful to be able to read the text and to see myself and to see myself situated in, okay, this is who I would have been (laughs) in this time frame. This is who, you know, there is a, a, there has always been a framework for who I would have been. And so I'm grateful for her archival and her research work. Shout out to her. I am going to thank my great grandmother. Shout out to my girl, Dorothy who passed away. She passed away in 2016, but I was going through some documents with family this past weekend and found her master's degree from 1970. (laughs) I was like, oh, the women in my family, Ben, had a problem just (laughs) (laughs) collecting degrees for no reason. (laughs) 
<laughs> they're going to get that paper, okay? Every single time. Um, and it was so funny to see. Um, so thinking about, I want to thank her for um, just this really early concept of having women in my family who had questions and wanted to do research and wanted to be in classrooms and wanted to learn things. Um, if I'm thinking about my own excitement about research and learning. So shout out to her and her sister, um, my Aunt Ruth. God rest their souls. Mm-hmm. Very tender best. Yeah. We would also like to thank our guest, Courtney Faye Taylor, the Poetry Foundation, Itza Blancas, Idalmi Noriega, Sin Pim, Elon Sloan, and Ombi Productions. Please like, rate, and subscribe wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And if you check the show notes or our Twitter at BS the Podcast, you will find an additional resource with a prompt. Until next time, bye.